Welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental journalism brought to you by the team at The Ends Report. I'm James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be covering the new ish money put forward for councils embedding biodiversity net gain, the plethora of oil and gas licenses that may soon be granted in the North Sea, as well as a breakdown of DEFRA's new waste prevention programme. And for our deep dive, we're going to be discussing the importance of low traffic neighbourhoods and, oh yes, the ultra low emission zone. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber! Joining me on today's podcast, I've got ENS Features Editor Tess Colley and Reporter Shosha AD. And first up, it's Biodiversity Net Gain. The government's flagship biodiversity net gain policy to improve the recorded biodiversity on any site in England by 10% post-development is coming down the tracks. And money talks. So last week, we found out how loud. Tess, what's the story? Um, So... From November, for developers needing to meet their 10% biodiversity net gain duty, they will be able to purchase statutory biodiversity credits as a last resort. And last week, DEFRA published the indicative prices for these credits, uh, which will be made available to developers. Uh, And these people have been waiting for these for ages because obviously they're quite... Um, an important backstop because, you know, the the fear that developers express is that, well, if if the private market for credits, um, biodiversity credits isn't isn't set up enough. Where are they meant to like? How are they meant to meet the the biodiversity net gain duty if they have to go uh, away from from the local site? Um, and the, and the government's answer is these credits, but they're trying to make them intentionally quite expensive so that it promotes a private market, um, which is what they've done because the credit prices range from forty two thousand for lower tiered habitats to six hundred and fifty thousand at the upper end. Which a lot. is quite a lot of money. And you mentioned these statutory net gain credits are a last resort. So what's the first port of call for developers? Well, the first port of call is to not cause any damage to the environment. Uh, but then, you know, assuming that does have to happen, they're meant to follow what's called the mitigation hierarchy, um, which means that uh, if they if they can't avoid harm, um, then they need to try and find that mitigation uh, on site or near the site where they're they're doing the development. If they can't do it there, then they should look off site somewhere else, um, um, and then they should look at you know, maybe buying biodiversity units from these third party providers um, I mentioned. Uh, and then the last resort are these statutory credits. And you had a chat with the Natural England's net gain SAR, uh, Nick White, who is was on last week's I hope that's podcast. how he refers to himself now as that's well. That's how we refer to him, <laughs> and now he must refer to himself as that. Um, did he give you any indications as to kind of the the costs involved here for developers? Uh, yeah, so, you know, is this a lot of money for developers was more or less the question. He said DEFRA had done, you know, quite a lot of assessments um, of, of kind of the impact assessment on the industry. And really, the bottom line for developers here is really very little. It shouldn't really make any, it shouldn't impact viability of developments at all, really. Um, obviously, these are big numbers, the kind of 42,000, 650,000 when you look at it. But you've got to remember that some some of the biggest development companies in, in the UK, that you know, these are billion pound companies. So it's arguably something they can afford to absorb. And Tess was talking about some of those habitat 
valuation, Shosha. What have we got in terms of the sort of the types of habitats? So the habitats that are in the lower range, that's the £42,000 per credit. Um, these are all that are described as having a sort of low um, ecological importance in terms of the ranking, um, which is described as distinctiveness. Um, and then those which have a medium distinctiveness, it ranges from 42000 per credit to 125000 um, And at the top of that, that's land that's classed as sparsely vegetated. Um, the others in that category include um, some lakes, um, cropland. Um, and then the high distinctiveness values, that ranges from 42000 to £650,000. Um, and the top of that range is lakes such as peat lakes and marl lakes. Um, so it, mm. it's a huge range and there's a lot of habitats included under that. So they like the lakes which are a little bit acidic or very or, or quite alkaline. Lakes, lakes, lakes for the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, well, quite rare <laughs> habitats. And that distinctiveness value is very interesting. Something which is then calculated in the biodiversity net grain metric calculator, mm -hmm. which is fairly settled on right now, but I understand they're going to potentially publish an update when this rolls out in November. Yeah, well, so there's, at the moment we're on the fourth iteration. So, well, I think more, 4 .0. We're, we're on 4.0. It's like iPhones and just as exciting. <laughs> um, uh, and that, when when the this duty becomes mandatory, uh, it will become the biodiversity metric 4.0. Um and the government said in the last week there will be a transition period while that while one becomes the other, and during that transition okay. period they will accept uh, 4.0 as the one that local authorities and developers can use. Okay, and the ones who are using it are going to be the ecologists, of which the local authorities don't necessarily have the expertise to handle, or all. Local authorities have the expertise? Yeah, the, the number of ecologists in the country is pretty small. I don't have the figure to hand, but th th that's a real issue that local authorities are always talking about is that, okay, we're meant to be doing all this. We're meant to be checking the plans that developers submit, but we haven't got that expertise. There's a real skill shortage. Um, and I think even the kind of the, the ecology sector would say it's one thing that there's not enough money there. It's also it's just we haven't got people coming through. People aren't opting to be ecologists it's very it is interesting it's not just about the money but there was some money chucked at the problem <laughs> yes uh, from government can you tell us a bit yeah, about yeah they've that? announced uh nine million pounds be given to local councils between this november and next march march 2024 to support the rollout um and defra said this is for lpa uh, local planning authorities to recruit more ecologists uh though i'm un unclear just at the moment if that money is ring fenced or not um, but, you know, to bear in mind, there are four, but, uh, roughly 400 uh, local planning authorities across the country. So, um, I mean, the money, they, they need quite a lot. If every, if every um, local council is to have an ecologist, that would be a lot of money. I don't think that's really what the government is expecting. There maybe it will be a bit of sharing between different councils or, or that sort of thing. Um, this does follow on from another, set, you know, set, there was 16 million announced um an earlier date um but you know it's still the case if you're applying that for if you're trying to give a salary to an ecologist it's not it's not a huge amount no and again amongst all the hundreds of local authorities in England that need to deal with this mandatory policy coming down the line uh 
And there was some news of conservation covenants, wasn't there, Tess? There was some news of conservation covenants. So they've opened applications for eligible organisations to apply uh, for what they call responsible body status, which would allow them to enter into conservation covenant agreements with landowners. And these are a new type of legal agreement um, whereby the the land in question is what is, is held in that legal agreement. So even if the landowner changes that land, is 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 tied into whatever has been agreed um and it's one of you know one of the ways in which developers might be able to show they've met their biodiversity net gain obligations um but yeah so the government is inviting kind of eligible organizations to to become one of these responsible bodies and that could be a local authority a kind of public body or charity um where that your main purpose is relating to conservation um they've published full eligibility criteria and there will be some financial checks which defra have published it's also on our website so if you want more detail go go to endsreport.com and on to our next story then uh where our prime minister rishi sunak and the net zero secretary grant shapps seem to be celebrating the release of new fossil fuel licenses um shosha can you tell me what this is about so it's it was quite an interesting announcement um, on Monday from Rishi Sunak, which was sort of all about putting energy security at the heart of economic growth, um, which we warned was coming. And I think it sent everyone in a bit of a frenzy um, as we're coming up to a year on from Liz Truss's turbulent month as prime minister, where there was that whole was it a year? fracking fiasco. I think that was wow. September time, wasn't it? Time is yeah. warped, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was nothing that, um, should we say, earth-shaking. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but basically, he confirmed that hundreds of new oil and gas licences will be granted in the UK, which is part of the 33rd offshore oil and gas licensing round, which is currently being run. Um, this is interesting because in December, former Business Secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg did say 130 new oil and gas licenses were up for grabs. But whether this would actually be realised was thrown into doubt because um, the NGOs Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth and Uplift all wrote in pre-action letters to government about taking them to court if they went ahead with this um, because they weren't happy with new fossil fuels. But um, Sunak did seem happy. Mm. How did you frame this, this sort of announcement? Well, there were sort of two strands to his argument, which was um, even after achieving net zero, um, the Climate Change Committee said that a quarter of our energy will still need to be met by oil and gas. Um, And then, of course, he argues this should be from home supplies rather than hostile states. And he's talking about Putin um, here, who he described as manipulating and weaponizing energy. Um, It's quite an interesting position given that I don't know, it's quite a volatile market. I don't think you can have homegrown um, oil and gas. But that's yeah, market forces. It's not, it would be sold on the international yeah. market, won't it? Yeah. It's not, it's not. We're a great exporter. We don't really, we don't even really own the, the gas. Yeah, fields. it's interesting because Shaps sort of repeated the same line, I think. So it's. Um... Shaps. Shaps, <laughs> who I heard in last October at the Tory Party Conference give this big speech at the, Envi- the Conservative Environment Network about how net zero is conservative through and through. It's been interesting to hear him do a complete mm. about turn on that position. But yeah. he's the energy security and net zero secretary. So he's still he in is. his job title. He is. Well, I mean, they're arguing that this is energy secure. It's, it's 
making mm. it secure from volatile gas markets mm-hmm. and that it's net zero somehow because we're not importing it. So, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> it's so, a crazy time. It'd be interesting. It would be interesting to know how much does get exported of those hundred licenses. Uh, I'm sure there's some an- analysis listening in. Please do tell us uh, what what's going on at the minute. Uh, Eco chamber at haymarket.com. But not everyone does see it the way that um, the prime minister and zero, net zero secretary Grant Shap see it, do they, Tess? Certainly not. So Chris Skidmore. Um, who's the MP who published a review of the government's net zero strategy just earlier this very year, described Sunak's announcement as the wrong decision at precisely the wrong time. I'll read a bit more of what he said because it was quite interesting. He said, it is on the wrong side of a future economy that will be founded on renewable and clean industries and not fossil fuels. It's on the wrong side of modern voters who will vote with their feet at the next general election for parties that protect and not threaten our environment. And it's on the wrong side of history that will not look favourably on the decision taken today. Um, so that was pretty strong. I think you can say he's not happy. Um, and, you know, others have kind of come out, kind of people you'd expect from the campaign groups. Hugo Tagholm, director of uh, campaign group Oceania UK, described the announcement as a betrayal of the British people by a government entirely fixated on short term profits, he said, with no regard for a future for our children and generations to come. Um, yeah, it's really it's 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 really got a lot of people talking, and it's, as we're seeing, including some conservatives, Alok Sharma, who's the COP twenty six president when right. when uh, the UK held the presidency, uh, he's been been expressing uh, his displeasure with the, the things that are, are coming out. So, be interesting to see how this goes, and in the context of all the kind of the threats around ULES and around all the other kind of green strategy stuff. I think uh, it feels like there's a bit of a snowballing going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. There was some announcement about carbon capture storage, um, which the Climate Change Committee heralds as a necessity if we're going to reach our climate obligations. What was that about, Shosha? What did the Prime Minister announce? Yeah, so I think this got lost a little bit in some of the more um, controversial announcements. But he said that North East Scotland and the Humber have been chosen as locations um, for two new carbon capture usage and storage clusters. I mean, new is quite a misleading um, description here. The project in Scotland has actually been in development in various forms for over a decade. Um, But it actually missed out on funding in 2021 to two other projects that are both in the north of England um, and so that was quite controversial at the time, um, especially as the Scottish one's quite far along now, I, I believe. But yes, the government has a goal of capturing 10 million tonnes of CO2 annually by the end of the decade, uh, which is equivalent to taking 4 million cars off the road, according to them. Um, but it's a far cry from the 75 to 175 million tonnes that the Climate Change Committee estimates we need to recover by 2050. So, you know, I think it's it's a bit too early for optimism on this, really. Right. So let's talk trash for our last story. Um, and we're talking about waste policy. Gets us all going, doesn't it? What mess is the government getting stuck into now then, Tess? Um, this week it's been the uh, Waste Prevention Programme that's been published. Um, the WPP. As most people refer to it, yeah. <laughs> 
so need two <laughs> years after the government's uh, first consultation on it. So it's been very delayed. Uh, but on its launch, we had uh, Environment Minister Rebecca Powell uh, saying, we mean business when it comes to preventing waste. We're targeting the sectors responsible for the biggest impacts on the environment and working with business to take the right steps for better use of our precious resources. Um, but yeah, it's not not had the best reception from the sector. What have we learned from the announcement, Shosha? So there were some key headlines to be drawn from the report, um, which is the government plans to eliminate all but hazardous construction and demolition waste from landfill and reduce soil to landfill by 75%, which is part of this ultimate goal to work towards zero avoidable construction and demolition waste by 2050. Um, this isn't really a new announcement, but um, it's it's part of its strategies um, in the roadmap to net zero avoidable waste and construction. Um, they said they'll consider placing the textiles waste hierarchy, um, which provides guidance to businesses on fashion products and material on a firm statutory footing. Um, they've said they'll consult later this year on reforms to the waste, electrical and electronic equipment regulations. We <laughs> That sounds fun, doesn't it? It does sound fun. Whenever I see it, I'm like, wee! Wee! Waste, electronic equipment. Um, including ways that they could increase collections for waste electricals from households and businesses, which I think would be quite good, actually. Um, and they said new measures are in the pipeline um, to encourage reusable and refillable packaging. Um, and this includes the ban on single-use items such as plastic plates, cutlery, balloon sticks, polystyrene food and drinks containers um, from October 2023. That was first announced in 2021, though. Um, and the long-mooted plan, of course, to ban plastic from wet wipes, which is it still doesn't have a timeline. It's going to be announced in due course. Okay, plans, promises and pledges, um, but nothing certain then. What do we know won't happen, Tess? <laughs> um, well, so on the same day they, the government put out the WPP, um, they also published its response to the 2022 consultation on food waste uh, reporting by large food businesses in England, where it quietly noted that it is scrapping plans for mandatory food waste reporting. Um and this is this is quite an interesting thing because according to the consultation response document, ninety nine percent of respondents were in support of a regulatory approach to food waste uh, reporting for big businesses. Uh, and the gov government acknowledges that any action to reduce food waste would bring financial savings to businesses. But nonetheless, it decided that a regulatory approach is not suitable at this time, especially when any additional costs may be passed on to customers. Um, so that's, that's one thing we know isn't going to happen. Um, and it's, it's been met with some real disappointment by, uh, some campaigners, um, feedback, uh, the environmental campaign groups that they were dismayed, uh, after a decade of failing to act voluntarily, most UK food companies are still keeping their food waste hidden from public view. Uh, so Megan Romania, uh, and they're, pre this is preventing critical action. We need to address the climate crisis and food security. And and I did read that the, because it was going to apply to very large businesses, the cost was was fairly small, something like zero point two five percent for their cost revenue, cost of revenue. So yeah, I don't know. It was an in, it was an interesting argument that the government put forward as to why 
they weren't going to take yeah, it forward. Yeah, it is. They have said that, you know, in, in the Waste Prevention Programme, the other document, they, they say that in order to work towards eliminating food waste to landfill by 2030, which is all part of trying to meet net zero, um, it will provide over one million in funding uh, in 2023-24 to support consumer campaigns to, to to help households waste less food. But uh, that's focusing on the individual, you know, individual households, arguably less impactful than targeting those big businesses. Um, yeah, so that's that's what we know isn't going ahead. Just before we take our deep dive of the week, it's time for the moment of the week. And last week, parenthesis. Tess, what was your moment of the week? So mine actually, it's from a story published today. So, you know, very of recent times. Um, it was in the mirror. Boris Johnson's plans for lavish outdoor swimming pool under threat from... Newts. 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 Yes. Really? Of course it's Newts. Excellent. The revenge of the Newt. Because, of course, you know, he's got history with Newts. In 2020, so he, he turned on the the little amphibians, accusing them of holding back UK prosperity through newt counting delays to development. Um, but now, you know, he wants to build this big pool in his 3.8 million country home in the oh. Cotswolds. Um, but the local council's countryside officer has lodged a holding objection over the threat to the newts. <laughs> I um, enjoyed that. <laughs> I mean, I would love to have been in the, the meeting. <laughs> Um, apparently the, the country have said there's a reasonable likelihood that great crested newts are present and could be impacted by the proposed development as it falls within the red zone of highest risk. And mm. the reason why, listeners, is because great crested newts are one of those very highly protected European species. Yes, exactly. Which are apparently near Boris Johnson's soon-to-be swimming pool. I'd take that over a pool, a little pond of cute little newts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Boris might have to. <laughs> Boris might have to. Yeah, that was my moment. And what was yours, Shosha? Well, the reason I jumped in there and answered and ruined the big reveal was because that was also my story. That's all right. We can have two moments of the week, which it's are the big, same. It's a big moment for it's us. It's a big moment. <laughs> you could change. Why not? So the mirror is getting some love from us today. Um, but I like how they said that Boris dubbed his London mayoral rival, Ken Livingston, King Newt. Uh, at the time of his love of the amphibians, really? which I thought was quite a fun fact. Yeah, King King Newt. King Newt. Um, because I, he liked newts? I, I guess he liked newts. I think um, it says his love for the amphibians. Yeah. Okay. So I assume, I d- it didn't give any more details, but I would like to know. Okay. King sounds slightly like Ken. King Newt. Mm. Mm, I like it. King yes. Newt. Time for our deep dive as we take the plunge with ENDS Report's news editor, Pippa Neal. As the rollout of ULES marches ever forwards, we now know that the mayor has the law on his side. Pippa, why is that? So on Friday last week, the High Court dismissed a legal challenge which was brought by five Conservative councils. So this was um, the London boroughs of Bexley, Bromley, Harrow and Hillingdon and also Surrey County Council. Um, And they brought a legal challenge against um, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's plans to expand the ultra-low emission zone um, to outer London. Um, But yeah, on Friday, the High Court ruled in favour of Sadiq, meaning that the expansion can go ahead at the end of August as planned. And what did the judge have to say in that ruling? So the challenge was dismissed on all three grounds brought by the council. So firstly, Mr Justice Swift found that the legal basis on which the mayor made the decision to expand 
the scheme was sound and in line with the previous decisions around ULES and the congestion charge as well. He also found that the consultation materials provided all of the information needed about the numbers affected in order to make informed decisions. And finally, the judge also found that there was no obligation on the mayor to mitigate the impacts of the scheme with a vehicle scrappage scheme or to compensate for the impacts of the expansion. And so his decision to provide the £110 million scrappage scheme was sound and properly explained in both the consultation materials um, that informed the consultation and also the mayor's own decision. So Mr Sadiq Khan must have been a very happy boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what did he have to say on it all? So he he described this as being a landmark decision and emphasised that this means that he will be pushing ahead with the scheme at the 29th of August. It's due to go live. Um, and it's worth mentioning here that the High Court ruling was kind of one obstacle in the way of this expansion. But following the Uxbridge by-election, where the decision around the so basically, when the um, Uxbridge by-election happened, ULES was a key political tool for both parties, Labour and Conservative. Um, and ultimately, the Conservatives won that election and um, Keir Starmer pinned the blame on ULES. And there was reports that he was kind of urging um, the mayor to, in quotes, reflect on the plans. So there was all this talk around, you know, what is going to happen? Is the mayor going to be forced to backtrack on his expansion? But given this ruling, it does look like he's going to press ahead. Um, And it was also interesting in response to the ruling, he also criticised the councils that brought the challenge. um, And he, you know, pointed that it's been estimated that over one million pounds of public money has been spent on taking the mayor to court. And he said, this is equivalent to 350,000 free school meals to children in the capital. Um, And I actually interviewed Sadiq Khan. Um, This was before the High Court ruling and before the Uxbridge by-election, but it was only a couple of weeks ago. Um, And so when I asked him about, you know, the kind of concerns that there was pressure from within the Labour Party to kind of draw back on the expansion, he said, you know, he was doing everything in his power to push through the expansion. That that was a key, like that was key for him. Um, And he told, you know, in, in response to one of my questions, he said he would urge the lawyer... Um, and those councils to kind of visit Great Ormond Street Hospital and see the children there that are dying as a result of air pollution. So I think the expansion and air pollution policy in general is a really key issue for the mayor. And I think he'll be really celebrating this success. Mm. And where does that leave us then come August 29th? What's going to happen after that then? So this will mean that... um, the 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 ultra low emission zone will be expanded to outer London, um, and all vehicles that don't meet the ULES emission standards, which are um, Euro four for petrol vehicles and Euro six for diesel vehicles, will have to pay a twelve pound fifty daily charge in order to drive into the zone. Um, just to put this in context, because there's lots of talk around this at the moment, but the mayor has estimated that nine out of ten cars driving in outer London are already compliant and so wouldn't have to pay the fee anyway. Um, but yeah, so even though, you know, this this ruling does give the scheme the green light, the councils who are against this, so the, these outer London councils are still kind of campaigning against the scheme. And Steve Tuckwell, he, you know, he won the Uxbridge by-election by saying he's going to push um, the mayor to kind of delay or, or cancel this expansion. Um, so that's, you know, they're still putting pressure on that happening. You know, at this moment, it's hard to see how successful they'll be. 
Um, but I actually saw that the Conservative Party has a petition which they're urging members of the public to sign and they say they'll be taking that to City Hall um, at the end of August. Right, right. So no let up for Sadiq yet. Um, let's pivot though from ULES to transport and low traffic neighbourhoods and Rishi Sunak. <laughs> so what's the connection between all those things? So this Uxbridge by-election that I was just talking about, that kind of um, when Labour lost this election in favour of the Conservatives, um, Keir Starmer, you know, pinned that on the ULES expansion. And this kind of prompted a flurry of backlash against green policy. And there's been various retreats um, within the Conservative Party. So things like extended producer responsibility, which is a separate um, policy related to waste that's been delayed. There's been talks of kind of axing nutrient neutrality. So across the board, there's been this kind of drawback of green policy. And this has prompted green groups to declare that the government has started an attack on nature, which if listeners were listening to the eco chamber back when Liz Truss was prime minister, if you can remember that quite terrifying time, then you'll remember that that was a phrase that was thrown about a lot back then that, you know, the government was launching an attack on nature and the green groups kind of threatened to mobilise their members, which is something they've, there's been renewed calls for. Um, but part of this green policy retreat is low traffic neighbourhoods. And Rishi Sunak has now said that he's ordered the Department for Transport to conduct a review of the schemes. But So what is the point and purpose of low traffic neighbourhoods? It seems pretty benign to me, but it's such a hot topic mm. in, in, in local communities. So low traffic neighbourhoods are pretty simple. Like They're groups of residential streets which are bordered by main roads and through traffic is discouraged or removed. And this can be through putting boulders or barriers in the way or um, you know, having road signs or CCTV in some places. And the purpose is to kind of divert traffic onto the main roads in order to encourage people to cycle or walk and ultimately to reduce air pollution. But they are pretty controversial because some people, you know, say that it is just making those main roads more busy and polluted and more congested. Um, and there's kind of lots of different studies and articles kind of saying that that could be impacting, you know, the people that live on these quiet roads are benefiting disproportionately. Um, and that, yeah, there's a lot of conversation around that. But. That's interesting. I just up where I live, three streets over where there was uh, one of these zones, they, someone, people have actually ripped the bolts out from the ground mm. of the, the, these massive plant bollard type things. So cars are now driving down it, even though it's not meant mm. to. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I was having a chat with Shosha in the office because she lives in Oxford at the moment and it's right. re they're really controversial there. And yeah, yeah. a while back, there was kind of lots of conspiracy theory around this with people saying it was the government kind of, or the local councils trying to kind of control control like traffic and control our movements. But Yeah, right. Okay, like big brother, mm. big state, um, nanny state. You mentioned Oxford there. How many of these low traffic uh, neighbourhoods actually exist in England? Do we know? So they're dotted all around the country. Um, and there isn't, I couldn't find anywhere kind of a con concrete list of all of them, but there's reported to be around 300. They're pretty vast. They're all over the country. And the government has spent a lot of money rolling these out. Like it was really big during COVID when a lot of, there was kind of emergency funding for more active travel. Right. Um, so I think it's been reported that, you know, tens of millions of pounds of government funding has been spent on these schemes. 
then so much money has been spent. Why is or what is Sunak's rationale then for the review? In an interview with the Sunday Telegraph last weekend, um, that's where Rishi Sunak first reported that he was con- like ordering this review. Um, and he said he wants to, in quotes, make sure people know that I'm on their side, supporting them to use their cars to do all the things that matter to them. On Twitter, Rishi Sunak posted a picture kind of to coincide with this article where he labelled low traffic neighbourhoods anti-car schemes. And the picture was actually of him sitting in Margaret Thatcher's old Rover, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which, yeah, is, is interesting. I think if I'd been on the um, Big Green News, that would have been my moment of the week. Perfect. But um, he said the caption to this picture was, earlier I spoke to the Telegraph about how important cars are for families to live their lives. It's something anti-motorist labour just don't seem to get. And it's why I'm reviewing anti-car schemes across the country. So it seems like this, the the, the impact that the ULES had in enabling the Conservatives to win the by-election in Uxbridge has just kind of like lit fire up the politicians and it's kind of just become this like election issue, election campaigns at the moment. What did Labour have to say about being called the anti-motorist party then? So on Sky News, um, the Labour Party's Shadow International Trade Secretary, Nick Thomas-Simmons, um, he said it was staggering that Rishi Sunak was pitching himself as a friend of the motorists and said it was just a, another press release from the Prime Minister. And when um, he was pressed, you know, what is Labour's re- response? Like, would you kind of, do? are you in favour of low traffic neighbourhoods? Um, and he said he wants local authorities to make the decisions when it comes to low traffic neighbourhoods. And he emphasised that the party is in favour, but of well planned low traffic neighbourhoods and said that, you know, there does need to be communication with local people in order to avoid some of these issues that we're talking about, where people are ripping up bollards because they feel the schemes weren't communicated to them properly. Labour wants councils to have their voice on low traffic neighbourhoods. What have councils said about this review? Yeah, so I thought it was interesting. The Local Government Association, which represents local councils, they said that a review is unnecessary and said it is councils that are best placed to make these decisions for their um, for like local people and businesses. Um, and Councillor Linda Taylor, who's um, the Local Government Association transport spokesperson, said that it's only with long-term certainty of funding and consistency of government policy that councils can invest confidently in transport schemes, which will help meet the government's own target of 50% of urban journeys being walked, wheeled or cycled by 2030. It's also interesting to note that the Transport Secretary... Mark Harper has said previously this year that the government was going to be stopping the funding of any new low traffic neighbourhoods in England. Mm. So I guess we'll have to just watch this space. And that's it. My thanks to Tess Colley, Shosha Aidy and Pippa Neal for coming on to this week's episode of the Eco Chamber, where I've learned that statutory biodiversity net gain credits and their values are now a real thing. That there's black gold in them, there are North Sea underwater hills, and the Prime Minister wants it. That the government may not be as good as it thinks when it comes to the country cleaning up its act on waste. And love it or hate it, ULEZ is fast becoming a reality for London drivers, whilst new low traffic neighbourhoods around the country may not be if the Prime Minister has anything to say about it. We'd really love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, views, opinions, heresies and critiques. Please make them constructive. 
Um, but you can reach us emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on Twitter, stroke X, stroke whatever it's going to be called next, the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.